Welcome to Archonnect Sessions, episode 133. I'm Paul, and I'm here with my co-hosts, Donna and Ken. This week, we're joined by Alex Baca, a Washington, D.C.-based journalist focused on smart cities, planning, bike advocacy, and urban mobility devices. Recent news and related controversies surrounding Amazon's newly announced move into New York City and Washington, D.C. is what initially motivated us to bring Alex onto this show, but our conversation extends well beyond that. All right. So I am excited this week to be able to talk on the podcast with Alex Baca. Alex and I met uh, last summer, I believe, for the first time, but we follow each other on Twitter. And I always have enjoyed her insights on things, everything having to do with cities and urbanity and uh, public policy and all kinds of exciting things. So I'm really looking forward to talking to you, Alex. Thanks for having me, Donna. I'm excited to be here. So I wanted to sort of just start with having you introduce yourself so that our listeners know sort of who you are and what your background is. You do have an interesting background, and I will say, I taught a group of pro-practice students at Ball State University Architecture College last week, and I kept in trying to impress upon them that just because you go to architecture school, it doesn't mean you have to follow this linear path to be an architect. <laughs> that you know, design is so intermixed right now. There's so many different things you can do with your education, and I think that you have followed a pretty circuitous path. So, do you want to tell us a little about your background? Yeah, yeah. So I have done um, a lot of things that seem fragmented, um, but I think I'm finally at the point where I. I'm good enough at selling myself in like something of a linear path. So yeah, so right now my current title is engagement director um, at the Coalition for Smarter Growth, which is a regional nonprofit um, in the DC area. We work on transportation, land use, and housing policies in DC, Maryland, and Virginia. And this is something of a dream job for me. So I'm, you know, thrilled to be doing what I'm doing now. I moved back to DC. This summer, after about two and a half years in Cleveland, Ohio, I ran the bike share system there. And prior to that, I was in San Francisco, although I'm from the D.C. or I'm from just outside of the D.C. area. Generally, I grew up in suburban Maryland and my family's from Baltimore. So I've spent a lot of time in this area. I'm thrilled to be back, thrilled to be doing what I'm doing. But I have degrees in English and American studies. And I um, dropped out of planning school twice. It's kind of the, the joke that I, I have. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. The same school twice or two different planning schools? Two different planning schools. Okay. So I, I had my heart set on being a planner and I went off to University of Colorado at Boulder to learn the ways of planning because they had an undergraduate planning degree, which is not something that you find frequently. Um, and that ended up, Boulder is not a good fit for me in a way that Boulder is maybe not a good fit for a lot of people. And I transferred to University of Maryland, which is where my degree is from. And I got my undergraduate degree in American studies. So I was doing a lot of ethnographic research on gentrification and DC for my thesis requirements, which were really interesting and was expecting to go straight into Maryland's planning and preservation program. But I took a year off to uh, work in journalism. Lots of people tell you to take a year off, right? And like get some experience before going to grad school. So I did that. And I loved it so much that by the time I started grad school, I was like really miserable to be back in school. And that, you know, it was just like much more fun for me to work for Washington City Paper, which is where I sort of started my career. And I am really, really grateful for that experience, even though it meant that I didn't finish my my graduate degree the first go around. So I'm trying it again. I'm getting my Master of Public Administration and Policy uh, from American University. It's an online degree. So for anybody here who's like, worried about non-traditional school formats. I'm here to tell you that they can make all the difference in the world <laughs> in terms of whether or not you finish something, you know, education. I think there's a lot of different ways to do it that work better for some people than others. And, and sort of that kind of pedagogy question is always interesting to me. But I've done a bunch of stuff. I, uh, you know, I worked in journalism. I worked for a bike advocacy nonprofit in DC, the Washington Area Bicyclist Association. I moved to San Francisco. I worked but Gensler, I was in marketing. I've done that for a few different firms and, you know, became very good at responding to proposals, which is actually a skill that I still use today. Um, yeah, I ran the bike show system in Cleveland, moved back to D.C. So I've been all over the map, but it's been very cool for me to work in these spaces that touch, you know, both like like the business of the built environment and sort of how that actually works, right? Like that's functionally what, you know, responding to an RFP is. And in a lot of ways, that's what advocacy is. It's sort of like, how does this stuff run and how are you inserting yourself into the process and how do things get done? Um, and those are always really interesting questions for me. So I've been very lucky to have 
lots of professional experiences that have exposed me to different parts of that process. And I've just found all of that super, super valuable. So, Alex, before we jump into the meat of this uh, episode, I'm just curious, what drew you to study planning twice and what uh, caused you to drop out of of studying planning twice? (laughs) So I was fascinated by this stuff in high school. I read Suburban Nation, which is really interesting to me to think about now because I will say that I have a lot of issues with new urbanism, right? And I think we'll talk about smart growth a little bit later. There are parts of those concepts that I really, really love, and I think parts that feel somewhat dated. Um, but I know lots of other people have also read Suburban Nation, and that's sort of what got them thinking that the way that our uh, the way that we live is not the way that we have to live, right? And that there are serious questions related to the built environment and sort of not like the suburban form or the form of sprawl that are really, really bad, but that they don't have to be that way. So I read that and that sort of like changed how I thought about stuff. Suburban Nation is who wrote it? So Suburban Nation is Andre Swanee and Elizabeth Peters-Eiberg and Jeff Speck. So that sort of Congress of New Urbanism crowd wrote Suburban Nation. And that was really sort of changed the way that I thought about how our built environment could be laid out and what that sort of meant for the way that we lived. So it was very funny. Um, I was uh, packing up my stuff in Cleveland and found this package that my dad had sent to me, which was kind of the, the remnants of stuff in my parents' house. And uh, one of them, like one of one of the things in this package was um, like this project that I had done in high school that was very much a like, you don't have to take the test if you do a project instead kind of assignment. Um, and it was generally about sort of urban sprawl in Anne Arundel County, which is where I grew up in Maryland. And so I, I have sort of been on that for a while. I was not interested in going to college. Um, I went to like a pretty high pressure uh, private school. And so I felt like I had to choose a major before I went somewhere and was like, okay, so how do I just like, how do I do this thing that I'm reading about? What is this? Like, what is this field of study? And it turns out that that was urban planning. So I wasn't always like, I want to be a planner, but I thought, I, you know, I thought that that was the most sensible path for what I wanted to do. And it turns out that like, I actually don't want to be a planner is what I have learned. <laughs> but I love working with planners and I love working in that world. And I love the politics of it, which is in some ways, like we depoliticize planning sometimes. Um, and I like really love the political choices behind land use. So <laughs> I love your LinkedIn bio which is just, it's so simple. It just says, let's work together on making more places work for more people. That's exactly what it's about, right? And you can attack that from a policy side or from a design side or from a, you know, uh, urban activism side. Or <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I mean, it's a heavy lift, right? And we need everybody working on that. And I, I think about this a lot in terms of, you know, whether it's like smart growth or some of the the, the drama around Amazon. Is that like, Living's like not easy for a lot of people. Like America is not an awesome place to be for a lot of people. Um, and so much of that does have to do with where we live and what we have access to. And I, you know, if anything, I would just like more for more people, you know, more access, more mobility, more resources. And that can come to us from our built environment. And that can sort of facilitate that, you know, dense gridded streets are create places that are like much more able to provide that kind of access than like cul-de-sacs where you have to drive a quarter mile to get to like, you know, you can't walk a quarter mile, you have to drive it. So, right. So let's, uh, when you and I first met, we were leaving a restaurant and it was right when Indianapolis, the bird and lime scooters had just descended on the the city and I love them. I think they're amazing. I haven't actually taken one (laughs) myself, but I'm fascinated by how they what kind of opportunities they offer to people. Like you're saying, if you live in a cul-de-sac, I mean, I live in a streetcar suburb and I see the lime and bird scooters everywhere in my suburb. They are everywhere because it's easy to take them into the little, you know, the little commercial strip that's a quarter mile away from where I live. So, but you said something when we left that restaurant, you were like, I'm not going to take a personal mobility device until it's my own personal mobility device. (laughs) And I don't know if you were just, you know, joking because we'd had some drinks with dinner or (laughs) what is your sort of attitude on these kind of scooters and and small scale personal mobility? Yeah. So I am totally, totally in favor of them. What I think is really funny, and I actually say this like somewhat often, is that like, you know, I lived in DC when Capital Bikes were rolled out and Cabby is an amazing bike share system 
And it's very comprehensive and it's almost a decade old at this point. But I lived here. I never used Capital Bike Share. I was like, I'll buy a year membership if I use it. And I never used it in part because I was riding my own bike. And it just like that was just easier. And now that I'm back in D.C., I'm still not using cabbie regularly because I have my own bike. But I think that that speaks to just sort of like the way that people conceptualize their trips. Right. And like. For me, it's just if I'm not riding my bike, it's because like I really want to go for a walk. And so a scooter is not necessarily something that's going to facilitate that kind of. But like that's just totally, totally personal to me. Like the awesome thing about publicly available mobility devices like scooters and bikes or bikes and whatever comes next is that, you know, they they can be the sort of common denominator for a lot of people. And it can be recreation and it can be transportation. It can be a whole bunch of different things like you still have to get from where you are to where you're going. That necessity doesn't change. You know How you do that, though, is really predicated on primarily what's most convenient for you, right? Like you're not going to take the train if it's 25 minutes away. Like you're going to call an Uber or you're, you know, you might like if the bus is pulling up, you might get on it. But if it's not going to do that in the next five minutes and there's a scooter next to you, you might take that. So people generally take what's convenient to them, which means generally that it's the most like frequent and reliably accessible option. And scooters, I think, just like add something to that mix, which is really important, right? It's, so I, I'm all for them. I want more of them. I have not ridden one yet. Um, but um, <laughs> Paul, Ken, have you guys ridden a scooter? I, I have, yeah. I, I tried out the bird scooter. Well, it was actually great because I was on a field trip with my daughter at UCLA and UCLA was one of the first places that had them. And I realized I had forgotten something in the car and we were all the way across the the campus. So I saw a bird scooter <laughs> and I was able to just fly across the campus, get the thing out of my car and come back Awesome! in very little time. It was it was fun. And the funny thing is, is I just started noticing them pop up in my neighborhood, which is Altadena, California, which is kind of like a north of Pasadena. It's not the kind of place I would ever imagine seeing these pop up because it's really, you know, it's kind of at the edge of the sprawl. It's not a place that you drive through. It's it's really kind of off the track. But just in the last three days, I've seen them pop up all over the place. And I'm interested to see how the community responds to those. I just think they're, yeah, they're amazing. And I think more you know, we've we've sort of gone through and Alex coming from a maybe a policy background or knowledge of the policy background, Indianapolis has a policy in place. I mean, we were a city that was actually very sort of, I would say, um, regressive in the way that we said, no, 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 you can't roll those things out here until we get it figured out. And now we are taking a fee from every scooter to help fund bike and alternate infrastructure, basically. So we have been kind of a less free market approach to them maybe than other cities have been. Although I, I have to admit, I have not really studied how other cities have rolled them out, but they're super popular here. So, you know, obviously we're, we're as a city, as a community, we're getting something out of them in return for also getting the mobility of them. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that there has, there's not yet been a sort of like, how do we do scooters the best sort of story? <laughs> um, and I think, I think everybody's trying to figure it out as they go, which is, which is really interesting, right? I mean, I think we hear a lot of buzzwordy stuff around like, ooh, innovation, like, ooh, like technology or whatever. And it's like, you know what? It's just kind of, it's procurement and permitting. Like they still kind of rule the day, right? <laughs> like that is not anything new or sexy, but that's just, that's how it works, right? Is that the people or like the experience that people have with scooters is like entirely predicated on the regulatory environment. And the regulatory environment is not innovative. It is not technologically like right. advanced or anything. It's just like what somebody in some particular position of power decided to do. Right. <laughs> and so for me, like my preference for micromobility, and I would say that I don't think any city has come out swinging with this approach. And I would really like to see it because I keep talking about it is one that says like, you know what? We don't care about whether like scooters are good or bad, but like people are using them. We have sort of a moral imperative in the face of climate change to get people to drive less. And like we're going to do everything that we can to get people to ride these, right? As part of their transportation. And I wish cities would say the same thing about bikes, frankly, right? Like I worked in bike advocacy for a long time. Right. But I would love regulations that are not necessarily fines on the scooters or fees or whatever. Although I do like that Indianapolis is repurposing what Bird is paying into like paying for bike infrastructure. I do like that. But more like, how do we get these distributed so that people use them? How do we make them connect to trips that people want to take? How do we, you know, 
offer them as an option and so, so that we can raise the cost of parking, which is probably too low anyway, to induce demand for trips that are not driving. So I would love to see just like a really strong user focus on getting people to ride this stuff. I think like a few years ago when I would have these conversations and talk about it, it was really easy to say like, oh, we don't want to say that there's a war on cars. Like, you know, we don't want to say that there's like, we like no one should drive. And, you know, I just think that you should pay the fair cost of driving, right? Like I have a car. It cost me $35 to get a residential parking permit in DC. Like that's like ridiculous. Um, so I have a car. I do not feel like I am charged for, you know, what is the sort of like the, the spatial and, you know, certainly environmental like use that it takes up when it's parked on the street and when I'm driving it around. So Long way of saying that, like previously, I tried to like hedge some of this stuff, but now, like I think between like the IPCC report, like the very obvious sort of like climate disasters that we're seeing, like we have a really big moral imperative to do even really tiny stuff like making scooters easier to use than a preferred option, especially in cities that are very like car centric and just have these distances that are kind of too far to walk sometimes. Well, and you you talk about this this sort of attitude we have, this sort of general attitude of perception of that, oh, it's a car is just how we all get around and that parking it for free on the street is just the way that we are. When the scooters first hit Indianapolis, I remember seeing a wonderful meme and it was by someone on Twitter that I think we probably all follow. And it was basically a picture of a freeway overpass and there's cars bumper to bumper in every direction. And right in the middle of the picture, there's one guy on a scooter. And the caption was the headlines lately are scooters are flooding the streets of American cities. And it was like <laughs> one scooter in the midst of a sea of cars. And we have this perception that cars are supposed to be everywhere. That's just how we live, right? I mean, I think like going back to you talking about suburban nation, we just have this perception that of course there's cars everywhere. And now things like scooters are coming in and we're going, wait a minute, maybe there's other things that, you know, maybe there's other, other ways we can approach this. Yeah, I mean, it's a big sort of, consideration of norms, right? And like what we think is acceptable and like a single family home where you drive them from work is like totally acceptable and totally normalized. And I don't think we question enough like why that's like so entrenched as something that's normal, right? Like, and I I wrote this thing firstly a few months ago, I think maybe earlier this year about adult dorms in San Francisco in part because like, you know, the Twitter take was like, Oh my God, like who would live in an adult dorm in San Francisco for like however much money per month? Like, this is insane. And like, when I, like, even when I would talk to people like in person about that, like they would just be like, oh, that's like kind of weird. Like, why would you want to live in like, you know, basically like a boarding house? And I was like, well, like maybe it works for people, right? And like Donna, when I was in Indianapolis this summer, like the project that you took me through, that's something very similar. Like I was like, there are definitely phases in my life where like this would have worked like super well for me. And like maybe this would have been a better option than like living in a single family house on top of Bernal Hill with roommates, right? Like, you know, not to say that that is like the be all end all. And certainly like we need to be building lots of different types of things for lots of different types of people and life situations and stuff like that. But fundamentally, like, we're not doing that right now because we have encoded the sort of normalization of certain things like single family houses and driving for transportation. And so a lot of times, like, <laughs> I think people have this, like, not even knee jerk, because like, I do think it is like deeply entrenched and sustained opposition to, to not just new stuff, but things that seem deviant. And like, you know, scooters like totally fit in that. And so do adult dorms. And so does you know, to like biking to work, right? Like how how often do people think that like the person who wears spandex to bike to work in their office is like the weird person in the office? <laughs> like, <laughs> exactly. and, like exactly. I make that joke all the time. And in bike advocacy, we try so hard to normalize biking by being like, you can bike in like whatever clothes you want and you like don't have to get sweaty. And like, it's like, who, like, who cares? Like if you want to wear spandex to ride your bike, like wear spandex, you're going to wear jeans, wear jeans. Like, I don't really care. I care that you're not driving. Like, yeah, exactly. So that actually feeds really well into this whole question of Amazon and the Amazon HQ2 fight that I know you have been uh, following and have comments about. Well, I read an article that you wrote on the corporate urbanism in the heartland was, I think, the name of it. And we can link to it in the show notes. But you're talking about how this attitude that we have to get business and get jobs and we have to kowtow to these big businesses and we have to have these public-private partnerships, that that's the only way we can move forward in the Midwest or really anywhere right now. Like that that just becomes the norm that that's what cities are about is 
allowing for these capital investments and job growth to happen. And so, I, yeah, I just kind of wanted you to riff for a while on Amazon HQ2 and wh- how that is our, like you said, it's sort of default that we think, oh, that's just the norm. That of course, everyone would want Amazon to come to their city. Yeah. No, the Amazon thing has been so fascinating. I believe I have a piece coming out on Vox about this tomorrow in which I kind of talk about some of this stuff. But it was funny to sort of sit back and actually have to write about many of the things that I have been sort of shouting about for what feels like the past year. You know, obviously I live in DC. Crystal City is not terribly far from my backyard, although I don't really have a backyard anymore because I live in an apartment, which is good. I did not like (laughs) mowing my lawn, so that's fine. But it was such a big issue in Cleveland as well because, you know, as with many, many cities, like Cleveland submitted this like totally redacted bid that was like, you know, who knows what they, what kind of house they offered to give away with that. And, you know, anywhere that I've been, it's just like people want to talk about Amazon and nearly no one that I know, whether in sort of my age bracket and I'm in the sort of like slightly older side of millennial, but also like older than me is like super comfortable with this idea that Amazon is coming other than people who are sort of in the politics of it, in which case people have been very much like cautiously optimistic. I'm not going to try to blow up anybody's spot, but I talk to a lot of people who are sort of like in the planning world and publicly they'll be like, yes, this is really important. Like job growth is really important. And I 100% agree growth is better than decline. I don't actually think that you can have a steady state. You're either growing or declining. Growth is preferable to decline. I totally agree with that. But the degree to which people have been very nervous around Amazon has like very much struck me as something different. And I think that's because it's one big thing that you can point to, right? It is an Amazon. <laughs> and, and, and so what's interesting about the DC stuff is that, you know, one half of HQ2 or whatever is coming to Crystal City which has a whole ton of office vacancies because of this thing called the base realignment enclosure, which people in DC will be familiar with. It was this sort of big reallocation of like military space and office space and where people were throughout the region. So, you know, Crystal City has all this space for all these workers and the job projections are not, you know, too far off from what the region was projecting anyway. You know, our, our, regional council governments is like, yeah, you have a major housing deficit and you're expected to add more workers. And Amazon is not exceeding those projections, right? Like Amazon is just what we were going to add anyway. But in terms of jobs, but you just said you have a housing deficit. We do have a housing deficit, but that housing deficit was going to continue regardless of Amazon. Yes. And so I think that that, that's been sort of my point with this is that anything that we needed to do to kind of like staunch this like perceived blow of Amazon kind of needed to happen well before HQ2 was even something that someone was thinking about. So it's kind of tough, right? Because it's like, it's this weird spot where it's like Amazon is actually not that exceptional, but it feels really exceptional, I think, because it's one clear thing to point to and, and to a degree demonize. So I get both sides of it, right? Like I get being very nervous about what your city is going to become and not knowing what that future looks like. And I also get the sort of deep concern over not growing and what happens if you hit the client, right? And so so living in Cleveland was very instructive for me because I had only lived in DC and San Francisco, which are growing cities and growing regions. And while there's a lot of, there are certainly constraints to that, the client is very different. And the city of Cleveland is still losing population. And at this point, it's inner ring suburbs are still losing population. It's just a very weak region. The counter counties are collar county or collar counties are growing. And that's really bad for, you know, what spatial mismatch refers to, right? Which is that that like mismatch between where people live and where they work. It's hell to get around Northeast Ohio without a car. That's really bad if you don't make a lot of money. It's really bad if you do make money, right? Because you're driving everywhere. And I don't find that to be a particularly pleasant way to live. So sort of seeing like being able to experience decline like sort of gave me a greater appreciation for what was happening in DC in the 90s. DC's congressionally prevented from running a deficit. Uh, if that happens, Congress takes over and institutes something called the control uh-huh. board. Um, and the control di- the control board days in DC were very dark, right? You know, like a lot of yeah. the city government was like fired for budget reasons. And like, it was a very dark time. And this is deeply entrenched in the minds of many people who are still working in DC today. And I 100% do not blame them for, you know, thinking about like what that was like and, you know, sort of relentlessly pursuing like businesses, right? 
but but much like with whether it's like sprawl or the environment or cars, like I really do wonder if it has to be like this, right? Because I'm not sure that it does. So I am a really, this is where I get to like be a fangirl. I'm a huge fan of Richard Schrager. He's a law professor at UVA. He wrote this amazing book called City Power. Um, and I talk about it a lot because it's one of the few things that I've read that is sort of a credible alternative to the way that we do business development in cities now. And he makes a really clear argument as to why you should work on just providing basic services and not doing this sort of like tax break and a tap dance, right? Generally well accepted that cities do not make up the taxes, like the tax breaks that they offer to corporations. It's just this like whole idea that it's not even trickled down at that point. It's like assumption that like, oh, you have businesses in your city and then that's what makes a city work. But people live there too, right? <laughs> and it may be an issue that there aren't enough people to pay the property taxes that you need to cover your infrastructure. But that I think is that ties into this even greater existential question about like, you know, why do we why do we tie property taxes to schools and why do people move for that? And why do people like, you know, why do people move? Why is it hard to concentrate people in certain space? Is that a preference? Is that a policy? Why do we have these sort of like urban forms that we have? So I think Amazon has made everyone think about this in a way that they might not have previously. And it's occurring at this point where we sort of have this economic segregation just happening nationwide, like really, really quickly and much more visibly, I think, than in previous decades. So previously, Amazon might be something that somebody would be excited about, right? But now I think, like, for the most part, people are very, very nervous about what it means, even if. Even if it's not, especially, I can't speak as well for New York, but for DC, even if it's not going to exceed sort of what was expected and what was probably going to happen without Amazon. So, Alex, I mean, the couple of things that come to mind when you're talking about this uh, is it seems sports teams have been doing this for what, 40 years? And no one really, I mean, we, we build, we build stadiums, we build under the same principle. But what's different about sports teams versus Amazon? And this is kind of where I wonder if this is why they get us bent over the barrel on this on these kinds of things, is that you can't own a stock in a sports team. We own stock. We have our 401ks kind of tied to the viability and the profitability of corporations like Amazon. And when they do well, theoretically, our 401ks do well. And then theoretically, we can pay for our kids to go to college. I mean, so how do we start to separate that kind of that umbilical cord that feeds this kind of just this monster of development that just kind of we're down this path doesn't seem to ever be a way out for us. Yeah, no, that's a really interesting question. I mean, again, so I'm 29. So whereas I put money into my 401k, a lot of people I know don't. I hate him. I, I really hate 401ks. <laughs> they come to my office and they encourage us to put more and more money in. I'm like, when you do that, I get I get scared because it tells me that you're going to fuck it up again like you did in 2008. Yeah. No, it's a, real, it's a real fear. Either you can be scared of putting your money in a 401k or you can feel like you don't have any money to put into a 401k. Um, so breaking that umbilical cord may actually be more of an inevitability than anything because people just may not be using those, right? Because that may not be available to them in the same way that like, I'm not sure how many of my peers are buying stocks and stuff. I can maybe think of one person who has spoken about doing that, right? And so... So that may just, that may be a relic. I don't know. Um, I'm not, I'm not like a good future caster, but I think the way that we do money and the way that we do investments is not going to change because of like Bitcoin, but, but, but because people aren't making enough to like live the lives that they either expected or that they should be able to live. Right. But beyond that, I mean, I don't, I don't have a good answer. I'm not, you know, I have an English degree. I'm not like a finance whiz, <laughs> but I do think that the point about stadiums is really Interesting because like a lot of times you you do get pushback and protests on stadiums, but a lot of times people are really okay with that because they love a sports team so much that so they have this emotional investment in right. in a stadium exactly. and that they feel like that's a particular sort of identity. So I feel like those actually like they get a free pass too. But yeah, I mean, mayors have been giving away the house to like anybody who like even vaguely expresses some sort of interest in every city for so long that like I understand why they do it. I understand why we have this paradigm. I just, you know, we could be doing things differently. And it would probably take a sort of national commitment to not offering corporations tax breaks, which seems impossible. But there's no reason not to talk about that because I think it's really important. And I mean, who knows what some what the next like 
crazy like tax break offering is going to be. I mean, I remember when I moved to San Francisco, it was shortly after the Twitter tax break, which was a big talking point in the city. Like that was pointed to for a lot of things. And it was not a great deal for the city. But in some ways, like I feel like that got blamed for things just as a proxy because it was really easy to point to. And I feel the same thing is going to happen with Amazon. So how does all of this relate to, and I want to get to your to your favorite topic as soon as we can, how does all this relate to smart growth? How are we able to do it smarter when we're so entrenched in the ways that we've already been doing all of this city building? Yeah, I think it takes a ton of structural change. And I'm not sure that smart growth as a movement has, and I'm, I'm not trying to like knock the world that I work in, but has really manage like the the level of needed structural change to, to alter this because it's not just the built environment and it's not just policy. There's a whole bunch of stuff that that goes along with that as we sort of talked about. So I mean I love smart growth. I'm a smart growth true believer, right? Like if you said like, yes, we should build things densely and compactly, like near transit and walkable neighborhoods so that you don't sprawl and threaten a sort of like environmental viability of some of our like the really beautiful natural places in the US which is also a huge environmental justice issue because you know the people who suffer the most from sprawls suffer the most from everything that intersectionality goes all the way down i 100% believe in that but we tend to win smart growth victories on project by project basis right and there's not anything inherently wrong with that you know certain projects are really really important I was thinking about sort of the Rosslyn Boston corridor in Northern Virginia, which is a like a really, you know, model sort of like smart growth corridor, right? Where there's a lot of density around the transit stations and it kind of steps back into the single family neighborhoods. And that's something that people who live in Arlington are very comfortable with and very proud of. But the constraints of that are, are showing, right? Because there's there's not enough housing there and now it's very expensive. So you need more. And that might mean not sticking skyscrapers in the single family neighborhoods, but it may be putting fourplexes there or changing the zoning laws so that when, you know, an older house is demolished, it's not rebuilt with a McMansion, it's rebuilt with a duplex, right? Like things like that. So, you know, Smart Growth is in kind of a weird place. It kind of came out of the EPA in the 90s. And there's a certain set of Smart Growth principles. And they make a lot of sense to me, right? And if you fundamentally think about it as like building into accessible places to keep people from sprawling, because we have a lot of reasons to keep people from sprawling. That's something that I very much agree with. But getting that to happen, you know, zoning is a huge factor. It's very much the way of that happening. And I, I really don't think that that can be understated. If you want to talk about, like, how do we enshrine norms? It's like so totally through the zoning codes in the U.S. So I really don't think that you can overemphasize, like, how important zoning is to just, like, what we experience and what we consider normal. And I think smart growth would say, like, we want to change that. But making that fit in 2018 is a little bit challenging, right? Because you're still talking about growth. And for some people, growth comes off as, like, very negative, right? Because it's hitting this point where people like me, like, are entering this sort of, like, next phase of their lives and, like, might want to start families and might want to stay in these cities. But it's sort of just, like, heartbreakingly expensive and difficult process in a lot of places or in the places where it's easier, like Cleveland, where real estate is more affordable, the job opportunities are not necessarily there. And there, there's that growth piece, right? So it just it does feel like we're in this big mismatch as a nation. And the answer is not necessarily like compelling Amazon to go to a Cleveland or a St. Louis or Detroit to like save that city necessarily. But it probably looks a lot more like way stronger antitrust protections, right? And breaking down monopolies, but also like reevaluating our zoning codes. And those things are really hard for people to digest and they're very scary. And the people who understand them tend to be in the business of not wanting to change them because they benefit. So have you seen any examples lately? I mean, I whenever I think about these sort of smart growth issues, I, I always think that the solution is in tiny scales. It, it like it, It's coming at a tiny scale of, yeah, we'll allow a triplex here in this neighborhood and people will slowly start to get used to it. But that's just moves at a glacial pace. <laughs> you know, is anyone doing a sort of big top-down zoning code change? Minneapolis is. Minneapolis yeah. has. You're right, Ken. Yeah, they're, they're going through a 2040 plan right now, um, evaluating the, mm -hmm. the density of our uh, inner ring suburbs. Well, not inner ring suburbs. I, I live in Minneapolis, but I live in a, you know, um, kind of a People don't believe I live in a city, but I do. So they're reevaluating, you know, what is what is the growth? What should happen in my neighborhood? Should we continue to have single family homes even after those, uh, 
you know, sh- or should it tr- start to transition over time to, you know, duplexes, quadplexes, and add that level of density that's missing from our neighborhoods? Because there's what's happening now is that people are tearing down these small craftsmen's, these single family homes, and building gigantic uh, homes that are just too big for the lot for one family. So, yeah. so we're oh. we're trying to think about the the smart the the smart path, and you know what's hard is, is that the 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 constituencies are the, the same on uh, even on this level they're they're the same the you have these people who are coming in saying no 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 this is stupid but you have you know and scaring people and then you have people like me who are like I, I'm for I'm for you know growing this community in a way that makes makes sense sustainably and I'm all for this plan even if I don't know the nuts and bolts of it I generally think that if you're against if you're against the smart uh, path that you're probably on the side of corporations so. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, but even the Minneapolis comp plan, I'm not as looped into that as I would be if I lived in Minneapolis. But my understanding is that the sort of original mandate of like legalized fourplexes, like then got turned into like legalized triplexes, right? And so it's that like the Overton window is not moving. And I think that the small scale projects are really important to show people how this can be. Like we have an accessory dwelling unit initiative at my organization that I actually think is really cool. And it's so tangible for people in a way that other things that we work on is not because like you can take people to an ADU and be like, this is what you can build in your backyard. Right. (laughs) And that's something that people can see and respond to and be like, okay, this works really well for me. I'm interested in pursuing this. It's just very tangible and very concrete. Whereas it's so easy to turn a fourplex into a boogeyman and say that, oh, we're not comfortable with fourplexes, so we got to scale this back to triplexes are okay. Um, And then you lose a ton of your density, right? A ton of that proposed density, which is really important for these growing cities. And it's just like, really important to get people to interface with each other. Like a lot of the things that people say they like, right. You know, like local businesses and like being able to walk places and like seeing people in like places where their kids can play safely and like streets where people don't speed down in their cars. I know density is like often a dirty word. And like, sometimes we don't say it in our communications because it makes people nervous, but like, it's really important. And that doesn't mean stacking people into skyscrapers. (laughs) Um, We have like, we have so far to go where we're, until we hit the point where we're stacking people in skyscrapers. But like, you know what? If that's where you want to live, like that should be an option for you too. You know, I live in the, one of the most granola eating neighborhoods in Minneapolis. It's It's been described as like, oh, you bunch of white hippie liberals over there. And I tell you what, I'd never understood the kind of racism that exists with even in that within that community when we decided we were going to turn from we were planning on taking an old school and turning it into a not um it was for uh older it was for people who or who were aging out of their home and wanted to stay in the community because they love the community so much. And when they didn't, when the development company found there wasn't a market for it, they said, well, what if the community, would the community be looking for workforce housing? The minute we, we said, okay, we have to go back out to the community and we said, we'd like to do workforce housing. Would you kind of provide comment on this? I mean, I was astonished at the, at the racist boogeyman that came out that were concerned about young Somali families moving in or young Mexican uh, immigrant families moving in. It was astonishing just on that level, the kind of, you know, the, the real racism uh, rears its head in a community, even as liberal as this one. It was really, uh, it was quite stunning. It had me pull back. Yeah. I mean, the fear of an other is so very, very real and people in dominant groups really don't like to feel threatened. Um, and so, you know, the sort of the other in the U.S. does look a good deal, you know, less white than, again, what we've normalized. And I think that's, you know, that is, very hard to talk about. And that often gets coded and couched in a lot of different ways in people's rhetoric, especially in public meetings. You know, I've been to some like very nasty meetings where the implication is that like just someone who is totally, you know, they must be a terrible person because they're not like somebody who doesn't live in this neighborhood currently. And like, that's really hard to like, like doing that level of psychology is like so hard, especially in meetings that are specifically about certain projects, right? I think that's also sort of a failing of our public input process is that we require public input for especially like transportation and housing projects and some land use stuff as well. And public input is really important, but we tie it so often to specific projects that these projects become proxies for like way so many other things that there's just like no forum for people to deal with. And that can get really toxic really quickly. 
But I mean, I'm not surprised to hear that. There are some very liberal neighborhoods in many, many cities that would say, like, we welcome everyone here and then are just like, I don't want this new development in my neighborhood. And <laughs> and and I, 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 I love the proliferation of, like, photos of those, like, all are welcome here versus, like, you know, like, no to this development in people's front yards. Like, I, I personally enjoy that genre because I think it's very funny and it's very, you know, pointed. But I think that, like, you know, either there needs to be a sort of like top down like thing, a policy that says like, no, you're going to get this development anyway. Like, and that looks like a lot like changing the zoning code to allow for more by right development of, you know, a certain density or a certain level of affordability or whatever sort of criteria you want to stick on it. Or we're just going to continue to use these like individual projects as ways to like demonstrate what we think about other people. And that I feel like is just not super healthy. <laughs> Alex, are you familiar with Nextdoor? You know, the the app and website. Oh, uh, yes, I am. Yes. Uh, so, so, I mean, in, in, <laughs> in your line of work, I mean, I think that this platform offers something very interesting. A lot of it is is like kind of a scary reality, you know, an insight into into what our neighbors are thinking, which often more more often than not tends to be a little disturbing. But there also seems to be a lot of benefit in kind of opening up this discourse among community members. Is there anything in your line of work that is being taken out of Nextdoor or platforms like that to kind of help understand the kind of the the micro level discussion that's going on around cities and and what's what's happening around around people? Oh man. Okay. So this is such a funny question because when I was at City Paper, I was on the early or, or the or next door list door. I'm combining them. DC for a long time had so very many neighborhood listers. And for a while I was on like as many as I could get on. And they were bad shit. Like, uh, <laughs> like just like, like I'm on my neighborhood's next door. And it's very funny. I live in the neighborhood that I lived in before I left DC. And the next door is very tame compared to what I remember the list there have been, and I don't know what the reasons are for that, but I don't, I don't, this is not at all a scientific sort of comparison because I'm not on other next doors in DC and I'm not on any of the old Google groups anymore, which were just like, I mean, they were truly works of art. So I actually had this like daily posted city paper that was the neighborhood news roundup where it was like the craziest thing from each of these listeners. And I, I will send them over for you guys because they're like crazy. <laughs> yes. <laughs> like, so like, I, I do have a sort of absurd love for just like base level neighborhood drama and like what people think that they can say in public. <laughs> um, so, you know, that said, we are not currently engaging on that front. And I think that that brings up a really interesting question of who gets to speak and what gets treated as valid or legitimate. And this isn't even like a, like, who's it for criticism. But I think that, you know, say you have a thousand constituents, right? As an elected leader, I'm really bad at numbers. I'm going to try to make this as simple as possible. But, you know, say you have a thousand constituents and you have a public meeting and a hundred of them show up and you leave the meeting and you say, okay, we got input from the community, but only a hundred people out of a thousand showed up. Like, is that the community <laughs> or is that just the people who showed up? And I feel kind of the same way about neighborhood listeners, right? Which is like, are they a viable sort of representation of what people are thinking and what people are doing as fascinated as I am by them? Or are they just a really specific representation of the people talking on this listserv, right? And I don't think that that stuff is inherently bad. And I don't think that means that we shouldn't take it seriously, but we should be really mindful of that, like, if you have a thousand constituents and only 100 of them are showing up and only 200 of them are talking. That's 800 people that like, you're not hearing their voice. And, you know, you can either go through the like somewhat tortured process to like try to hear their voice, or you can maybe make decisions through like a different matrix that emphasizes things that may disadvantage the people who showed up to complain, but benefit, you know, based on perhaps what data, survey data, data tells you might benefit more people or what. I mean, but that's another paradigm that you have to change. And so, so we're not doing anything specific with neighborhood input stuff. I do think that there are some really powerful uses of like digital communities. The the ADU initiative that I mentioned um, that CSG and my organization is working on actually has a listserv that is like a really fascinating like place where people are working out the problems that they have with their ADUs. And it's it's a Google group, so it's a great place to like upload stuff and keep track and document things and share content with other people. And that's kind of a 
like internal enough community that's about something specific enough that that's working really well for the people who have self-selected into that. But in general, I try to be wary about anything that is labeled as community representation because information represented in that stuff may not be may be super useful and it's totally valid. Like as to how representative that is, I think that that's always a question that we should be asking. Oh yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Ken, go ahead. Having been part of a neighborhood organization and, and been on the board of a neighborhood organization, one of the things that, I mean, you just struck a nerve with me because it was the, the neighborhood organizations are so, they, they so much want to present as a unified front and everything's good, nothing's bad. The minute they get like three or four people who never show up to a fucking meeting ever, only come out to complain when it's going in a direction that they don't particularly like. But they never come to actually add a constructive voice. They're come to shoot down. And the minute the board hears any kind of complaint, they quickly tuck their tails and run. And they never just go, no one ever asks the question. What represent? How much? How much of that is representative of the community? This person only shows up to complain. They never show up to any like any other neighborhood event, and they only get this one person who comes out there and just is the loudest, shrillest, most obnoxiously racist voice in the room. And we just say, "Oh, well, that that must be representation of the entire community." Yeah, I think it's just really you know, and there's there's nothing wrong with saying like the opinions that we have gathered here are like the opinions of the people who showed up on this date over this period of time. So Alex, I want to, I'm derailing a little because I want to throw a bone to our, uh, to our architecture listeners because our connect is an architecture website and we're, we're running up on an hour here. Um, although certainly we all have lots of opinions on all of this. Yeah. Um, but you did work for a while at Gensler and I wanted to know if you feel like architects are starting to do better in this realm. Yeah. <laughs> I guess I'm, I'm like looking for a pat on the head. Oh, yeah. um, I mean, I feel like, <laughs> I, I feel like architects are interested in bigger questions of how we live in the world, how we build community. But uh, what is your take on that? Because I know that most people still think architects just, you know, we want to design the next skyscraper. Yeah. No, <laughs> Which isn't sure. true. <laughs> I think that there's a lot of good going on with architecture and like, I mean, seeing just stuff like I'm very surface level at this point, but like, you know, seeing the architecture lobby stuff is very heartening. Oh, yeah. And what I really like is when I see architects meetings and getting politically engaged. And I know sometimes that is a risk for business development, but I think it's really, really important because like architects tend to be system systems thinkers, which is a quality that I really appreciate in people. And, you know, they can, you know, I think that that's a, a really interesting place to be, especially with cities. And that gives you a sense of sort of like what the intersectionality of certain things are, whether that's something like, you know, race, class, and gender, or, you know, land use transportation in the built environment, is that I, I think that architecture as a discipline sets you up really well to understand those intersections. And that's really, really valuable. So I'm always heartened to see people showing up and engaging and, um, you know, working on things that are not just what they're doing in their offices. So seeing more architects get involved with that and sort of embrace that, like, the like everything is very political right and you know design is political and the way that buildings look is like very much an outcome of politics and decisions made by people in certain levels of power right and so acknowledging that and being able to talk about that i think is super super important so i think that there's a lot to work with there and a lot to work with going forward and it's a it's a big responsibility right like some days like it is really hard to wrap your head around what it means to be in you know be a sort of a cog in that machine right yeah. <laughs> um, and yeah. i feel like you can't make all the difference in the world but you can do something but you're not sure what it is but i think especially like getting that conversation about usability and design for users and what that means for cities as a whole and sort of wrangling with the political questions around architecture and space and where we live and why things are the way they are is something that the field is set up really well to do. And I would love to see more of that because, you know, in my experience with designers, like they're super perceptive and they get this stuff. And the more of them that talk about this, whether it's through something like an architecture lobby-esque campaign or just going to your own meeting and providing your own expertise is like, I think that there's so much ground to, to cover there. And I, I, you know, my job is engaging people, right? That's my title. <laughs> I try to get people to uh, get out and talk about this stuff and find, you know, help them find that place in smart growth for them. And I think that it's a big sort of civic engagement project, but it also feels like democratizing things that have not been accessible to people for so long. And sometimes architecture can feel walled off. 
but it doesn't have to. And I think a lot of architects I know are, are you know, totally understand that and they, they want to move that forward and open that up to people. And that I think is, that's my hope. And I see some of that happening. I think that that's very cool. Excellent. So, uh, Alex, at the end of the show, we kind of ask a couple of questions, um, kind of, uh, it's been a kind of thing for us. Um, what are you listening to and what are you reading these days? Oh man, what am I reading? Um, so I have like a whole pile of papers about sort of like environmentalism and land use in the nineties that I'm working through. I'm looking at like my reading stack right now of books that I haven't cracked yet, which include What a City is For, which is like a Verso book, uh, Chocolate City, which is this history of DC, a whole bunch of other stuff that I need to get around to. But before bed, I've been reading Lori Moore's short stories, which are just beautiful and sad and total like comfort food for me. She's one of my favorite writers and I return to those often. So they feel very familiar, which is Really nice. <laughs> I feel like I have not really been into anything music-wise. It's been super interesting. I've got a new record player recently, which has been like fun because it's a different listening format. I haven't listened to my records in a while. So the last thing that I had on there was uh, Cass McCombs album, which was very pleasant. So yeah, man. So you're uh, you're pretty focused on the the city land. You're into it, and you are. You said you are working on your master's degree right now. I am. Yeah, I'm going to be done in May. I'm so excited. <laughs> Fantastic. Yeah. Fantastic. Yeah. You know, I was having this conversation with someone where you know, how do you stay engaged with the work that you're doing um, outside of work? And for me, like. Part of that is just reading as much as I can about it. Uh, there's always more to read. So. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm so glad you were able to be on the show. It's so much fun talking to you. And I know we could have gone on for another hour, but... Uh... But yeah, we try to keep it. We try to keep it to about an hour's worth, even though there are so many issues around this that we can talk about. So, thank you so much for being on. I really appreciate it. Yeah, this is fabulous. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, thanks a lot. Well, that was our show. I hope you enjoyed it, and I hope you are all enjoying a happy Thanksgiving to those of our listeners in the U.S. If you have any questions, comments, or suggestions, you can reach us on Twitter at our Twitter account, ArcSessions, or with hashtag ArcConnectSessions. You can also send us an email to connect at ArcConnect.com if you have any questions. And if you enjoy this podcast, please consider rating us on iTunes. Thank you very much, and we'll talk to you next time.